My friend Mike, uh, he's been speaking at Heartland for a number of years. He loves Jesus. He loves God's word. He loves you. And we're going to have a great time together. So let's welcome Mike from Fresno, California to come and share with us. Thank you, Byron. Well, good evening. How are we doing? It's good? I like the energy so far with this crew. You're punctual. You're excited to be here. I like all of it. Uh, well, I'm, I'm a little jealous, honestly, of what you guys get to experience. Um, I came to Christ in college. I did not know who Jesus was from a hole in my head until my freshman year of college. So this experience of coming to camp, getting to hang out with your friends and do all of this uh, is really cool. And I feel like as a speaker, I kind of get to be a part of it uh, kind of through you guys in that way. So I'm delighted to get to be with you this week. Uh, a little about me. Uh, again, my name is Mike. I've been in Fresno for 18 years. I'm originally a Texan, so I'm an import, uh, but grateful to be here. I've got one wife, uh, three kiddos at home, so I've been married 23 years, and that's the right order. One wife, three kids, not three wives, one kid. That's, that's frowned upon. Uh, so 23 years married. My oldest just got married last summer, which was nuts, so I have one daughter that's married. Uh, thank you. We, it was crazy, but it was good. We're, we're still alive. Uh, my middle just finished her freshman year at Grand Canyon University, and then my, my youngest is a junior. We'll be entering her junior year next year uh, in Clovis at the school where we're at. So fun to get to be with you. Fun fact about me, okay? You can ask me about it later. I am missing two toes. Not kidding. On my left foot, right? I knew I shouldn't have brought it. Everybody's going to be like, wait, I'm not listening to a thing he says. I just got to see his feet. I wore flip-flops just for you guys tonight. I'll make a deal. The story's crazy. I will tell you the story, but over lunch or breakfast or dinner, okay? So as you guys see me in the dining hall, I'd love to hang out with you. Grab me, and that'll be like our crazy, weird introduction to get to know each other. Tell me about your feet, Mike. That's what I want to know about you more than anything, right? So, but we'll have fun together talking about that. So um, I say what, as a speaker, one of the things I really have come to appreciate about Heartland is their desire to just to open up the Word of God. So that's exactly what we're going to do this week. There's no uh, light show. There's no there's no fog machine. There's no fancy. There's just, we're going to get in the word together. So if you brought your Bible with you, and I hope you did, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter one. And here's what we're going to spend the week doing. We are literally going to walk through Romans, uh, about half of the book together. Uh, at times, we're going to skip rocks, right? We're going to cover a lot of ground and not scuba dive a ton. Uh, at other times, we're going to scuba dive. Okay, tonight is a night where we're going to kind of move through a couple chapters, the introduction of the book of Romans. So we're going to work through uh, basically chapter one, midway through all the way through chapter three together. Uh, as you think about the book of Romans, maybe for some of you, this is brand new, and that's awesome. If this is new for you, this is the, a great place to be. Uh, Romans is one of the most significant books in your Bible, certainly in the New Testament. Uh, a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul wrote the book, he had never been to this place. He'd never been to Rome, but there was a church that was established in this area, and Paul wanted to encourage the believers that were in this church, and he wrote them this letter. So it's a book in our Bible, but originally think about it as a letter. This was a letter that these folks that were there received. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul tells us and tells them why he wrote this letter. It's the verse that's on the front of your booklet. It's the theme of our, our entire time together this week, and this is what it says. Paul says to these people that are there, I am not ashamed of the gospel in verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man or woman obviously shall live by faith. That is the theme of the book of Romans. 
Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. The word gospel literally just means good news. And this entire book is about the good news that comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's to the Jew first, the people of the Old Testament that had the Mosaic law, this kind of interesting and unique relationship with God, but it's also to the Greek or to the Gentile, the rest of us, you and I that are in this room, all the non-Jews, Paul calls them Gentiles or Greeks or Romans, so to speak. Uh, it is to everyone that is there. And what Paul is saying is there's, there's one primary need that every individual on this planet needs more than anything else, and we see it here in verse 16 and 17, and that is righteousness. That word is used 40 nine times in the book of Romans, meaning it's really important. Paul is trying to communicate something that you need, I need righteousness. But how we come about getting that is so, so important. More than food, more than water, more than anything else, this is the one thing that you cannot get for yourself. And according to the apostle Paul, it is the most important thing that all of us need. It's God actually who acts on our behalf to reveal and deliver this righteousness to us. And the book of Romans is literally about that process. This righteousness, Paul says in verses 16 and 17, is received by faith. It's not based on anything that we do. Well, as you think about this letter as a whole, the reason Paul pens this is because there was a, a belief that, that Paul wouldn't come to Rome. As you think about Rome, right, we think about some of the, the senators that we saw earlier in the play and all of these things. But one of the things that we all know about Rome from our schooling is the big boys, the big girls, they lived there. The philosophical thinkers, the, the brilliant minds of the day, they, they were in Rome. And people said, hey, Paul, you're not willing to come here because your little like back town country gospel, that won't hold water with these great thinkers. This, this guy named Jesus, he doesn't even compare to these people. And Paul says, oh, no. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation, and I desperately want to bring it to you. So as we think about why this letter was penned and what we're going to see in it, this is the idea of why Paul wrote. He longs to come to this group, but God, for some reason, hasn't opened the door. So in the meantime, he pens this letter, and it is a letter full of incredibly good news, the good news of the gospel. But before he can show people the good news, before he can tell people about who Christ is and what he has done on their behalf, he must first convince people that they need to hear this good news. He's got to start, in a sense, with the bad news. And unfortunately, that's where we're going to begin tonight. So this isn't a feel-good message, so to speak. This is a heavy, real, how the Bible sees you and me, um, in a sense of us getting downwind of ourselves through the scripture. So this is where we're going to begin because it's where the Bible begins. And I want you to notice as we now kind of move quickly through chapter one, verses 18, all the way through chapter three, Paul is going to continue to talk about this need of righteousness. And what he's going to do is Paul is going to prove why that you and I do not possess the righteousness in ourselves that we so desperately need. Whether that's Gentile or Greek, like everyone in this room, or even the Jew, nobody has it. And what he's going to do is systematically dismantle every argument that you and I would bring to the table to say, oh, but I'm, 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 I'm good enough. I, I don't need this external righteousness. Uh, maybe I'm not Hitler, right? I'm not that bad, but I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm somewhere in between. I'm, I'm good. I don't need what Jesus has to offer. And Paul is going to say, that's foolish. You need to understand not how you view yourself, but how God sees you. And friends, for some of us, this is the most important thing that we're ever going to discover in our lives. 
This was the question that I had to grapple with my freshman year of college. Is I sat on the second floor of a building at the University of, the, of North Texas where I went to school, and a guy stood before me and he said, Mike, if you were to die today, how sure are you that you would go to heaven? And I said, oh, like 80%, and kind of used that same idea. Look, I'm not super proud of everything I've done, but on the whole, I think the good kind of outweighs the bad, and God's, you know, like, I think he'll let me in. Uh, and then he said, Mike, do you want to know what the Bible has to say about that, of what Scripture has to say about you? Because it didn't matter what my estimation of myself was. It matters what God's estimation of us is. It's like walking into a test one day. You're like, I got this. I'm going to crush this math exam. And then you walk out with like a 47, right? Your estimation may have been, hey, I think I'm here. But the reality is you're maybe somewhere very different. And that's what Romans 1 does for us. And friends, to be honest with you, it is devastating. It is hard to hear. It is in our face because it is so completely different than maybe anything the, the world has communicated to us. As I was a, uh, later on in college and was, was kind of seriously dating my wife and moving towards engagement, I went to go buy her an engagement ring. And that jeweler that I knew as a friend brought out all these diamonds in front of me. Before he showed me them, he put a, a big black piece of felt on the glass counter. And I asked him why he did that. He said, Mike, sometimes to understand the true radiance of what I'm about to show you, you have to see it against its darkest backdrop. What we're going to look at tonight is that dark backdrop. This is the black felt. Now, look at verse 18 with me. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. This is where Paul now turns after saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who would believe, to the Jew first and then the Greek. He says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In verse 18, it's a direct contrast to what we just read in 17. In verse 17, it's the gospel that is the righteousness of God revealed, but in man now in verse 18, it's the wrath of God that's actually revealed. And we need to so understand verse 17 because if verse 18 is coming our way, if we don't, we will receive, in a sense, the wrath of God. And that idea of revealed is a present tense verb, meaning it's not coming one day. It is presently here now. But the question is, who is God's wrath against or who is it against, though? And the idea in chapter 1 is anyone or any culture who rejects the true God and establishes in his place a makeshift deity, that person or that culture will end up in a lifestyle that we will see described in verses 24 and following of chapter 1. And that is the wrath of God. And I want you to notice what Paul says about that in, in verse 18. They suppress the truth in righteousness. They know the truth. The problem is they suppress it. In the face of what is obvious, they choose to deny it. You ever played that game in a, in a swimming pool where you take a big beach ball and you try to hold it underwater? That is the, the picture of what's going on. They literally are taking the truth and they're trying to force it underwater. They're suppressing what is obvious around them. They know the truth, but they refuse to acknowledge it. In these cultures that are out there, be it here in America or anywhere around the world, this is the sign that they are denying the truth of God. There was a painter years ago by the name of Paul Gauguin who believed if we could somehow just find a society out there that had never heard of God, right, that was not influenced by man's laws or Western laws and those sorts of things, he thought if he could just find some society that was untouched by people in their religions and all those sorts of things, that he would come upon a group of people that were pure and good, 
where all that existed was, was good, natural things. So he left and he went to a place called Tahiti. And you know what he found? He found there sin and violence and perversion and death. Because sin is not just something that is placed on us. It is something that is actually within us. You know, it's interesting. I never had to teach my kids how to be selfish. They never had to learn that lesson from me. They knew that naturally, coming out of the womb. And it's the same way with sin. In so many ways, that is what uh, the idea of what the Scripture teaches us about sin. There's no such thing as a noble savage. Even the most remote places on the earth, sin still exists. And Paul will say, sure, there are people out there who maybe haven't read the Bible, who haven't heard the name Jesus yet, but there's no such thing as a person who has no idea of the concept or the idea of our God. Paul gives, in fact, two ways in which they are clearly known about God. In verses 19 through 23, he's going to say, number one, by creation, and number two, by conscience, God has revealed himself to them. Let's look at how this is so obvious. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, read it with me. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through that which was made so that they are without excuse. Do you see the two things there? It is evident to them in creation. I had an opportunity a couple of years ago to go sleep outside at about 11,000 feet in the middle of the eastern Sierras, of, of the California Sierras, where there was no light pollution anywhere around, and friends, to see the stars on a night like that. I had to look up and think, God, there has to be someone out there bigger and greater than me that created all of this. You have revealed that to me. As I think about the complexity of the human body, 206 bones, um, if you think about moving this finger, you actually pull a ligament in an, a muscle that's, that's not up here, it's, it's down here. The complexity of the human hand. God has shown us by his design and creation that there is an intelligent designer. There is someone outside of the system, and we can see that through his creation. But it's not just that. We can see also that he has put a conscience within us. It's evident to, to all, in a sense, around us. You look further on in, in that verse, you have the idea that there's a sense of right or wrong that is, that is embedded within us. We come out of the womb that way. And Paul says, as a result, man is without excuse, both by what he sees around him in the world through God's creation, in a conscience that, that, that pricks us and moves us in certain directions. It's funny that robbers really don't want to be robbed, right? They have a, an innate understanding that there's something about that that is wrong. But even though that this is true, what man does instead shows up in verses 21 and following. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations, uh, and in their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Instead of worshiping the creator, they worshiped the creation. Instead of taking a step towards a God who clearly made these things, they simply denied it. Instead of a sense of thanksgiving and wonder and worship, they replaced God with lesser things. And Paul summarizes here in verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. 
and they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Friends, that is a very sad state of affairs. That man refuses in our hearts to acknowledge that there is a God out there. Even though we have all these things that are like neon signs pointing the direction to a benevolent, good, caring, loving God. And I want you to notice in verse 24, as you look back up, what God's response was. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Friends, as we talked earlier about the idea of the wrath of God, this is the wrath of God on a culture where God says, look, if you don't want to acknowledge me, if you don't want to believe that I'm here, if you don't want to even confess with your mouth that there is something greater than you out there, I'm going to hand that over. I'm going to let you go on your way. And that is a horrible thing. Now, it's done out of love a loving God who says, I'm going to allow you to experience all that the world has to offer apart from me. And if you need that ultimately to turn back to you, then that's what I'm going to give you. When I was in elementary school, I was a skateboarder. I was terrible, but I tried. We went on vacation one year to East Texas. And where I was from in Dallas, it's like pancake flat. Well, East Texas had hills. They're like the first hills I'd ever seen in my life. Well, I took my skateboard. As soon as we got there, I went to the top of a hill, and I was committed to go down that hill. And my mom was like, Mike, that may not be the best idea. I'm like, Mom, look, I'm 12. I know what I'm doing here. Have a seat. I'm going to go down this hill. And she's like, I really don't think that that's what you want to do. And I I clearly hadn't thought this through, and she had. She was the adult in the relationship. But she said, I I really don't think you should. And I was like, Mom, no, this is exactly what's going to happen. And she said, okay, I love you, but I don't think you should do this. But if this is what you need to do, I'm going to let you do it. And I said, okay. So I got on the hill at the top of the skateboard, and I jumped on it. And I'm like, sweet, right? Wind's in my hair. I'm flying down the hill, and I'm going. And it's a really long hill, and I'm picking up speed. And I'm like, there's not really brakes on skateboards, right? And I get this thing called the speed wobbles. You ever have those? Like when you're like, uh-oh, okay. Like it's not coming back, and it just goes like this. And all of a sudden, about three-quarters of the way down this hill, I just supermaned off the front of my skateboard, and it was like elbow, asphalt, hand, hand, slide, knees, the whole thing, right? And I got up, and I'm like, oh, look, there's the tendon in my hand right there. Like, I couldn't see it before, but I can see it now. And I ran inside crying, right? And who was there to greet me at the door? Mom. She's like, come here, sit down, right? That's the picture of what's happening here. A loving parent, a loving God says, look, if that's what you want to experience, I know it's best for you, but this is not what you want to do. My mom was there in the same way that God was there, saying, listen, this is not what you want. As you scan now verses 26 through 32, you're going to see a list of deeds that are evident of those who have punted God and pursued their own selfish desires. And it's, friends, ugly. Look at these, some of these words, some of these descriptions in verses 26 through 32. Wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. Is that like there wasn't enough evil? They invented more. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Friends, those are qualities that God says are in us. Those are deeds that we produce as a result of what is in us. This is what man looks like apart from God when he has rejected God. 
We don't have to look hard, by the way, to see this wasn't just true in Paul's day. It's true in ours as well. These same qualities are evident in the world around us. Many of you felt this as maybe before you had come to faith, that these were characteristics or qualities that were true of your life. We see this all around in our world. And when we kick God out of our lives, this is the calamity that results. So what Paul is saying in this chapter is that man desperately needs the righteousness of God because in and of himself, he simply does not have it. Chapter 1, by the way, is aimed at the Jew, or the, the Gentile. And Paul now in chapter 2 is going to turn to the Jew and say, well, hey, maybe that was true of the Gentile. But what about the Jew? What about the person that like had the Old Testament, that had Moses and the Ten Commandments and the special relationship with God? Surely they won't mess it up like the Gentiles do. Look at Romans chapter 2, verse 1. He now speaks to them and says, Therefore you, being the Jew, have no excuse. Every one of you who pass judgment... For that which you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who practice the same things. Do you see what Paul says here? You look down your nose at these Gentiles, and you are actually practicing the same thing. You are judging them, and you do the exact same things. In verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. They are not excluded, even though they have this special relationship with God. And in verse 12, he says, for all have sinned without the law will perish without the law. That's the Gentile who didn't have the law of God. They'll perish without the law. They've condemned themselves by their actions. And those who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. When you have a law that says, do not murder, do not covenant, do not, or covet, do not lust, those things, those will condemn you. So whether you're Jew or Gentile, Paul says, all of us are guilty. Verse 22, he says, You will say the one should not commit adultery, but you commit adultery. You abhor idols, but do you rob temples? The Jew, he's saying, you are guilty of all of the same things. So in verse 23, as he sums this up, he says, You who boast in the law, though you break the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as is written. You were supposed to, as a Jew, be a light. You were supposed to be a beacon to show people what a relationship with God looked like, and you blew it. And as a result, the Gentiles are blaspheming your God because you are not doing the things that God has called you to do. And now in chapter 3, Paul drops the ultimate hammer. And he says there is a horrible reality that this continues to go down. He says in verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, What then is the advantage of being a Jew? Uh, What's the the benefit of being circumcised, which was their sign of uh, a covenant relationship they had with God? He says, great in every respect. He says, it's not not the Jews, um, it's not the faults of God, rather. It's the Jews that are are mishandling this. And he says, God is still faithful regardless of of all these misdeeds that they're doing. In verse 3, he says, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will he? He says, no, God's faithful. The idea in all of this is, though, that the creation is mishandling the, the, the commandments of God, they are to blame. God is still faithful even in the midst of this, whether it's Jew or Gentile. And here's the end result in verse 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Paul introduces a word here or a phrase, this idea of under sin that we're going to talk a lot more about in chapter 6. But what Paul is saying, in a sense, is the reason that these misdeeds are coming from the Jews, from the Gentiles, and from us as well, 
isn't simply because they are doing deeds that aren't honoring to God. Sin is something that we do, but it's not just that. Paul says sin is something that you are actually under. You are under its control, and you are under its influence. Any of you grow up with, like, older siblings that picked on you? Anybody? Uh, Maybe they're here. You can't raise your hand. That's okay, right? I didn't have older siblings, but I had older cousins, and they worked me over. Uh, I remember being, like, just bombarded by them one day, and they stuck me, like, in between the wall and the bed and, like, laid on top of me and, like, till I cried for my mama. Uh, I was underneath their influence and their control. And Paul says it's the same way with sin. Sin isn't simply just something that we do. It's a control that we are under. And in verses 10 through 18, Paul, like, basically finishes this whole section. I just want you to listen to this as he condemns everybody in case somewhere in the midst of this you felt like you had left this section uh, and you had escaped judgment or that you didn't maybe fit the bill of what Paul talks about. Listen to this. He says in verse 10, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat, in verse 13, is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace, they have not known. There is no fear before their eyes. Paul basically lays the the baseball bat to any hope of any sense of righteousness that anybody would bring before them. He says, there is none righteous, no, not even one. And in this last fail swoop, Paul condemns all of humanity. Friends, this is a horrible picture of where we are, but we need to understand this. We need to feel this a little bit. We need to understand that our estate, that our condition is seen by the Bible, is not this glowing representation of maybe what the world would say. This is how God sees mankind apart from Jesus Christ, left on our own. The idea is our bodies, our mind, our wills, our emotions, sin has affected every part of our being. Theologians call this idea total depravity. Every part of our being has been touched by sin. It's like a disease that has moved through us. And apart from God's solution to this problem, we are separated from him. And if God doesn't take the initiation, if God doesn't move on our behalf, then we are forever stuck in this state. Think about what Jesus said about how many people, how many men on their own move to God. He says in John chapter 6, verse 44, no one comes to me unless the Father draws him. So I want you to see, as we conclude this section, what Paul has done here. From chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul gave an entire section on our condemnation, both the Gentile and the Jew. Those that grew up with the Bible, so to speak, in the household of God, those that were far from those things, he says, we are all condemned before a holy God. He says in verse 19 of chapter 3, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable for God. It's like us standing in a courtroom 
and we are waiting for the verdict to come down. And any man that has the ability to speak against God and say, well, yeah, but, but God, look at me, or these things that I do, he says, we will stand with our mouths closed. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20 says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the world keep silent. We are like prisoners standing silent in a courtroom. And friends, unfortunately, though this isn't popular, this is the way that God sees the fallen world. This is the reality. This is the black felt. Now, there's a diamond that's going to come, but that's tomorrow. We'll talk about the beauties of what God offers. But we need to sit on this a little bit. We need to understand how God sees humanity. Its implications are so significant. Everyone is unrighteous. We don't think right. We don't speak right. We don't do right. We don't walk right. We don't see right. There's nothing about us in and of ourselves, in our flesh, that is godly or anything righteous about it. And the result of that is that we are all condemned before a holy God. All. There is none righteous. No, not one. There has not been a human that has ever lived on this planet from eternity past to eternity future that has ever, on their own merit, brought righteousness before God that God said, yep, you're righteous. No, not one. And what's more heartbreaking about this is there is no self-rescue. We are sinners both by deed and by nature. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We need a God who will move on our behalf, a God so loving and so caring that he can give us what we need, the very righteousness of God. And friends, that is the, the question that Paul begins this letter with. And friends, we need to understand this, that we do not have this righteousness. It's God in and of himself that can supply it for us. He is holy. And he has set in place a perfect standard for morality. Man is a sinner who in the face of truth chooses to rebel, and God is justified for condemning such a lawbreaker. We need to get to the point that we can say like Isaiah did, that our best deeds before God are like filthy rags. And friends, many of you, many of you have fortunately come to this reality. I walked 18 years on this earth before I ever understood that, before I ever heard what God felt about me. I gave my resume when I was confronted in the university union to this guy who said, Mike, how sure are you you go to heaven? And I told him all these wonderful things that I did. And as I look at what the scriptures say, God says, Mike, your best efforts are like filthy rags. Some of you have come to that reality, have come to that place in your life where you say, Lord, I surrender. I can't do anything. Some of you, this may be new. This idea, this concept is new to you. And maybe you're realizing through a history of broken relationships, of pursuing things that you thought would bring you happiness or joy, whether that's relationships or social media or whatever things that are out there that the world says are going to bring happiness to you, you've pursued those and you've found those empty. They, they may bring you pleasure for a moment, but in the end, they're empty. Friends, I want to ask all of you here, are any of you sick and tired of trying so hard to do right and yet deep down knowing that you can't do enough to, to make up for what is wrong within you, are you ready to accept the truth that you can't become righteous 
on your room? Are you done trying to become right with God? Are you ready to to finally accept His way of salvation? A way that is not accomplished by religious activities or accomplished by our works, but the work of Jesus Christ for us and His Spirit through us who changes our hearts to place our faith in Him. Are you done? It's the most important question that you may ask yourself this week. Are you willing to come face to face with the reality that there is nothing in and of yourself that you can do to earn this righteousness or to achieve this righteousness? To come to the end of yourself. And that, friends, is where I would love for us to end our time together. I want to invite the worship team back on stage one more time. I want to encourage you as they come and as we sing one more song before we leave to process this. And we'll talk again about the solution to this. Tonight is the problem. And there's a beautiful solution that's coming. But again, that's tomorrow. But right now, I want to leave you with that idea and something maybe to ponder as we continue to sing. Are you done? Are you willing in your flesh and in, your, in the place where you're at to come to an honest admittance that we in and of ourselves can do nothing to please God and to earn his favor? Let's pray. Father, as hard as this is to hear this reality, as hard as it is to to understand that on our own, we are dead in our trespasses and sins without you. Father, we need to hear this. And Father, I pray that this maybe sobering reality would be just that for, for someone here this evening, that they would understand apart from you, we are nothing. Father, you love us, you care about us, and all those things are still true. But we need to understand on our own merit, We simply cannot please you, and we cannot earn heaven. We cannot earn favor with you. That is something that you must do for us on our behalf. Would you stir in our hearts and help, Father, that reality can move maybe from our heads to our hearts. Father, thank you for your word and the opportunity just to see ourselves in light of how you see us. As we continue to do that all week, Father, would you be honored and would you be glorified. In Christ's name.